Well, good morning again. You get two preachers again this morning. Again, I say that because this is our second time doing this. So if you weren't here for round one, here's round two. (laughs) We realized we had fun, so let's do it again. Um, I mean, I had fun. Yeah, no, it was fun. Okay, yeah, it was good. So it was good to check to make sure both people enjoyed it. Um, So we're in this series during the Lenten season leading us up till Easter about changed and being changed. And these um, are all stories from the book of John that talk about people who have encountered Jesus. And um, they're either changed in dramatic ways, sometimes in smaller ways. But one thing is always true, that when you encounter Jesus, you don't leave that encounter unchanged right? And so we're just exploring this and inviting God to show us the ways that we need to change, maybe personally, maybe corporately. And so we're going to explore and dig a little bit deeper into this text that Tom just read. And so as we begin, as we look at this chunk of scripture from John 8 this morning, feel free to grab your pew Bibles if you haven't already or open up that app on your phone so you can follow through um, the narrative with us. Um, But one thing that as you look at your translation, translation of scripture this morning that we just want to say kind of off the bat, it needs to be noted that this text, John 8, 1 through 11, does not appear in original manuscripts of the Bible. Um, In some translations, the text might be set apart a bit. It might be printed in italics because the editor wants to make it clear to the reader that we should know that something is different about this story. Um, And while there may have been thousands of pages written on this text, um, you should know at the very least that this text is debated just a little bit. The main thing is there is not general debate on whether or not this event occurred, whether it was a part of Jesus's life um, and his ministry. That is not the question. Um, But this account, first of all, was not a part of the earliest Greek manuscripts. It did not get added until later. Um, The second piece is that it was most likely not written by John, who is the author of the book of John, but it was most likely written by another biblical author and then added later into this part of the scripture because of the tone of the writing and some of the themes it discusses. And so there's all sorts of interesting arguments involving original manuscripts and history, as well as internal literary evidence used in the text. And for some of you, this might be like incredible, incredibly interesting. You're like, let's, let's dig in. I want to hear more about that. And for others of you, like I've completely already lost you. And so we're just going to hit the pause button on that and just dive into the scripture because we believe this morning that it has something really important to say to each and every one of us. So just let me pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you that um, it's true, it's true in our lives, that we need you, we need to see you in important ways, and Father, you come and you encounter us, and you do that in ways that are unique to each and every one of us, so open up our eyes, open up our hearts and our ears to what you have to say this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as Colleen said, throughout this series, we've been talking about transformation. We've been talking about moments in people's lives where they've met with Jesus and have been able to be changed 
through that interaction. And sometimes in our own lives, those changes look a lot of different ways, right? Sometimes there are shifts that happen in our lives that just create something new, a different outlook, a different perspective. It could be the end of a season, like a graduation um, or an engagement or a marriage or having children, the end or the beginning of something that creates a new perspective on the life that you have. Um, sometimes, sometimes these uh, changes can hold us back. It could be something that um, creates a, a pattern in our lives that holds us back from being who um, we were called to be or who we were intended to be. Sometimes those things um, can propel us forward. Graduations can be a great moment of that where you're ready for the next um, thing in your life, the next great adventure that you have. Um, and some of these things just change the way you see the world around you. I remember many times having um, interactions with people that are so vastly different from me and hearing their story and being able to change the way that I view life because of that interaction and the way that I view people. Um, But all of these shifts can happen in our lives. And in our story today, everyone that is a part of this story has a change in their life. Everyone, I mean, spoiler alert, everyone that meets with Jesus has a change in their life, right? We all know that. Um, But in this story, everyone is touched by something that Jesus does in this story. And we want to dive deeper into what that looks like. And this week, as I was spending time um, in these verses, I realized that there's not actually a lot of information about the people in this story. There's not a lot of information about what's happening or um, who these people are or where they're coming from or where um, this is taking place other than it says in the temple. Um, And I love when scripture does that because it gives us the chance to kind of imagine what the scene could be like. Gives us a chance to step into the people um, and be able to think about what could be the situation happening in front of us. So this morning, we're going to walk through this story, and we're going to kind of just take moments to pause in different places and think about what it would have been like to be a part of the crowd or to be one of the teachers or to be this woman being brought in front of Jesus. So let's just dive in. Jesus is teaching at the temple. He started in the morning and he's speaking. um, And as he's speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees bring him a woman caught in the act of adultery. And last week, if you were here, Colleen talked about um, the role of women in Jesus's time and the way that people viewed women. And it wasn't that great. And this story is a, uh, a way to see that, is that they bring this woman out in front of Jesus and they kind of just like put her on display in front of everybody. And the reality is, in chant, like it's most likely that she is not fully dressed. She's most likely coming from being caught. And she's brought out and she's kind of put on display in front of the temple, in front of all of the people that are already there listening to Jesus preach and teach, in front of all of the people that are accusing her. And what comes to mind when I think about this is that it's probably the worst moment of this woman's life. She was just taken out of an act of sin and brought in front of everyone and exposed in front of everything. Everyone can see what has been done. And in the culture of, Jew, of Jesus's time, um, women weren't necessarily allowed to leave the house. 
There was a Jewish um, writer that I read this week that said that the uh, inner, there was like two parts of people's houses back then, and that the inner door was the boundary for women until they reached full womanhood, and then they could go to the outer door of their house. So chances are this woman hasn't really been out into the public very often. And maybe she had gone out of her house to go to somebody else's house, and that's how she got caught. Maybe she's never been out of her house before. Because the reality is, is that women of this time were not allowed um, to speak to other men. They weren't allowed to um, be out and about in public. And so her being brought out and put in front of all of these people is kind of a big deal in her life. The other thing that's interesting to me is that in Jesus's time, women were not allowed um, to testify in any sort of criminal um, or any sort of procedures. They thought that women's judgments was weak, and so they were not allowed to speak on their own behalf or behalf of someone else. And so this woman being brought out, even though it is her crime that she has committed, she knows that her place is not to speak. Her place is not to defend herself, even if she could defend herself, even if there was a reason why um, she was caught in the way that she was caught. She was just brought out and deposited in the middle of this um, crowd of men in her most vulnerable state. That is where we find this woman. She finds herself in the temple, naked, surrounded by men, and hearing them ask Jesus what they should do with her. And now there's another um, group of characters in this story. Um, There's a reason that this woman is before Jesus right now. And there's a reason that this crowd has gathered to hear his teaching, but now has to deal with the uncomfortability of this intimate moment that is now on display. And Jesus is sitting down, um, which is pretty normal for a teacher of that day to be doing. Because here's the thing, the teachers would sit down and the people would stand up so that the teachers could teach for hours and hours and hours and not get tired. Alicia and I are prepared to do that this morning. Um, We're ready. We're sitting down. Um, And so that's kind of how um, things would be done. And um, Jesus is teaching this group of men, and they drag this woman in front of him and, and, and the gathered crowd. And she isn't a person to them. Her feelings of humiliation, of sadness, of shame don't matter to them. Um, she is nothing more than a bait um, in their game to trap Jesus. So they don't like pull Jesus discreetly off to the side and bring the issue to his attention. Um, they don't wait for his teaching to be done before pointing out who she is and what has happened, but they drag her in front of the crowds and announce her sin to the entire audience. And here is the deal. They begin by saying, teacher, which sounds like they're approaching him with honor and with dignity, but instead they have a very different agenda. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And it should be noted here that when they're saying she was caught in the act of adultery, they're not just making an accusation, but the way that this is phrased in the original Greek text, this is a legal claim. 
They are not just making an accusation. They are making a legal claim. She was caught in the act of adultery. And they are bringing this issue before someone who they believe should be able to know, interpret, and enforce the law. So they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And it's at this point that you might be wondering, you know, adultery is not a one-person act, right? What's missing? Like, yeah, the man, like, where is he? Where is this guy? Where did he run off to? The reality is we don't know, but his absence speaks volumes about the injustices of the day. Women could be used as objects, pawns in a bigger struggle for power and authority. So the man might have run off. He might have stayed home. He might have gotten dressed and have followed them to be a part of the crowd, but he is not with her, instead allowing her to stand alone in judgment. And the law in this case was really clear about what it meant to be caught in the act. In verse 5, it reads, The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Jewish law said that this act must result in death but the religious leaders wanted Jesus to make this claim. They wanted him to enforce the law. They pressured him and they asked, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And when I first read this, it was a little bit confusing and I was trying to figure out why does Jesus really feel trapped? Because Jesus is Jewish and so he would enforce Jewish law, what's the deal? But along with further study, I realized that on one hand, Mosaic law said that this woman caught in adultery would be stoned. And if Jesus said, you know, just let her go, he would kind of tick off the entire crowd, right? The entire Jewish crowd. And on the other hand, if he said, yes, stone her, then he would be agreeing with the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And furthermore, in Roman culture, where these Jews were living at the time, Roman law forbid the Jews to execute anyone. That decision could only be made by their authority. So then he would be kind of opposed to the government as well. So there kind of are multiple layers that are going on here. And so they push Jesus to make a decision, to make a judgment on a situation that they had brought center stage. And then there's this woman, and she knows the law. She knows what she was trying to keep hidden. And she's fearful and alone in a crowd, knowing her death was imminent. And faced with these two options, Jesus does a very Jesus-like thing. He writes in the dirt. What does he write in the dirt? We don't know. That's part of the imagination that we get to use. And again, thousands of pages written on what he might have written, right? But that wasn't the main thing for Jesus. It's like he knew we would start analyzing what he wrote as if that was the key to the story instead of allowing what happens next to play out. So notice his posture, and Tom did it so well this morning. He gets down low. He gets down at level with this woman, and he writes in the dirt. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they are ready. They are waiting for Jesus to make a decision, and they keep pressuring him. So he stands up and he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. And then he says this, and he stoops down again to write in the ground. And can we just pause right here for one second? Jesus's silence in this moment is everything. He's letting the weight of this moment hit everyone in the crowd. 
He's pausing, allowing some room for the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit's job. To convict and to um, make us look hard and deep at our own lives. Without saying anything, Jesus is almost holding up this mirror under the harshest light for everyone to look at themselves, to search their own hearts. It's a moment, a moment where he allows the silence to be deafening. When he allows all of the people gathered there, the woman, the teachers, the crowd, his disciples, everyone to take a look at their lives to really think about what is happening in this moment. Even if they've been hiding their sin, even if no one else around them knows what they've been doing behind closed doors, he's giving them a moment to think about it. All right, let's keep going. And so in verse nine, it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And this had to have been such a surreal experience. One commentator wrote that it's interesting that the woman was caught in sexual sin and not in some sin like theft or blasphemy or any of the other countless crimes that could have been listed in the Jewish law. But then he noted that religious communities are often swift in their judgment on those whose sin includes problems with anything involving sex. This was certainly true in Jesus's day and this is still true in many ways today. Make it a sexual sin and that volume just gets cranked up a couple notches. In fact, going back to my opening comment about this text not being in earlier manuscripts, the sexual nature of the sin is one of the reasons it may not have been originally included. It was just too charged. It was just too polarizing. And we just need to know again that the accused one was a woman. And culturally, they were considered instigators whenever sexual sins were committed. They were labeled as lacking the spiritual and moral fiber needed to uphold the law. Friends, this is what it meant to be a part of Jewish culture. If you were a woman in this time, this was your narrative. This was a part of the hand that you were dealt. And I want to be very clear here that this is not the kingdom of Jesus. This is not the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. In fact, this was the exact behavior that the Son of God came to redeem. He doesn't tower over in judgment of her, but again, he stoops down low. He chooses to see her, not as an object to be played with, not as a pawn in some power struggle, but he sees her as a person with an identity, with a story, with a past, and here's the best part, with a future. It's so interesting to me that it says that the oldest left first, They were still ready with their stones, but it's like as soon as Jesus said, if you haven't sinned, then go ahead and throw the first stones. They were like, peace out. (laughs) Like, you know, you've got me like, see ya, I'm gone, right? Those older ones, they knew. I mean, it's the younger ones that kind of take a while, right? They're like, you know, maybe I have sinned and maybe I haven't. Uh, Maybe they just needed time for the emotions of the moment to calm down, or maybe just to get through that wall of pride before they acknowledge that they too cannot throw a stone. I can so relate with this. Um, I remember being younger, and I know some of you might say, you you are young. Um, But when I was growing up, when I was growing up in the church, and I'd hear of someone who had an affair, 
or they had misused their money, or I'd see them treating someone poorly, or I'd see them out and about drinking a glass of wine. Like, I was a good Baptist girl, and that was a thing, right? That was a thing. And so I remember this pride just welling up in me and thinking, well, that's never going to be me. And it was easy to hold such a judgmental position when I was younger. Or I remember being in college and running to the grocery store to grab a few things like, you know, ramen and Pop-Tarts, the, st- the staples, right? And I'd see a mom or dad in a produce section with kids who are just, they're flipping out in the grocery store. And I remember looking at their kids and thinking, no way. No way will that be me when I have kids. I mean, some of you have seen me in Target, and you know that like, life has gone in a different direction, right? <laughs> <clears throat> but then you get some years under your belt. And those years spent doing life with Jesus sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes can soften your heart and help you live a life of compassion. And I don't know about you, but as I get older, I am so keenly aware that there is a gap between where I am and where God is. There is this gap. I'm aware of the ways that I have fallen short, things that I don't get right, or maybe areas in my life I've chosen to not act at all. I've chosen to not do the thing that I knew I should have done. I am so aware of that gap in my life, and over the years and through a lot of experiences, God has been building up empathy in me. That empathy or being able to see life from another person's shoes helps us to build this platform of understanding that leads us to act out of compassion. Because here's the thing. Compassion is not just an emotion that we feel, but it is an action. It's something that we actually have to choose to live out. And so Jesus, he sees this woman and he saw her pain, her mistakes and her failures, but he also saw her. And he knew there was a plan and a purpose for her life, and he acted out of compassion. He chose to act out of what he knew to be true. And here's the crazy part of the story, friends. This was completely unexpected. It was completely unexpected. Jesus did the very thing that no one expected him to do. And it makes me wonder this morning, is your life, is there someone in your life who would expect you to judge them and you could show compassion? Let me say that again. Is there someone in your life who would expect you to judge them and you could show compassion? Is there a place in your life, a person in your life that might expect you to judge them and instead you respond out of love, out of empathy? I mean, isn't it a game changer when you're kind of gearing up for a negative response? You're gearing up for the consequences. You're guarding yourself for what is coming. And then either that negative consequence doesn't happen or it's replaced with something positive. Ever been in that position? Just this past week, I was in a meeting for a committee I sit on. And I was with a bunch of other pastors and it was a pretty large group. And it was me and one other female pastor in the room. And having been in ministry now for almost 20 years, I feel like I have the script in my head of how these interactions play out. Not that there haven't been exceptions, but I walk into a room and I kind of gear myself up for how I need to speak, how I need to interact, the questions I will encounter. Not because I want this, but because I've just been doing my thing. And this is kind of generally how the script goes. And I was getting ready for the meeting and sitting down and kind of gearing up. And one 
man walks up to me and he says, hey, you know, we're going through something in our church and I was wondering if before we leave today, I could get your feedback. And in that moment, I was totally chill on the outside, but on the inside, I was like, um, excuse me, what? <laughs> because to be asked for my opinion, to be asked for help was so outside of my expectation and so outside of my norm. Friends, we can give this kind of gift not only to one another, but to people in our everyday lives. Do we see others at a very low moment, at a moment that they would never want broadcasted to the outside? And do we quickly move towards judgment? Do we feel ourselves get superior, ready to hand out a verdict? And this isn't just towards other people, whoever our other may be, right? It may be in our own homes. Judgment towards a roommate or a spouse, Judgment towards our kids. Do you have an opportunity to show compassion? What about towards our neighbors, our coworkers? Because in these everyday relationships, it's just kind of easy to go on autopilot because we know the manuscript. We know how the conversation goes. We know what to expect. But what if we changed up the lines this week? Because the kind of kingdom Jesus is ushering us into invites us a different posture of getting low, a posture of feeling empathy and acting compassionately. Wrap us up. Okay. <laughs> Land the plane, Alicia. <laughs> I'm going to try. Okay. <clears throat> and we get a glimpse of what can happen in the end of this story. What can happen when we um, go outside of the script? This woman, once all of her accusers have left... Jesus stands back up and he addresses her, which is crazy. He speaks to her. He asks her two questions and then he gives her a command. And I can't imagine in this moment what's going on through her head, what's going on in her mind as she watches him stand up. She's already heard or watched all of these accusers walk away. But here's the thing. We know how the end of this story goes, but she doesn't know at this point there's still a chance that in her mind that Jesus could condemn her. Even though her accusers have left, she's been brought to Jesus. There is still this moment where he could condemn her. And instead he asks a question. And he says to her, where did they go? Does no one condemn you? He addresses her in a way that gives her full humanity in this moment. And so she answers, no one, sir. And I think it's funny that it's, it's translated as sir in a lot of our translations because the word used here most often in the New Testament is translated as Lord. And I think about that in this moment, she has a shift of who this person is. She is realizing that he is like no other person she's ever met. No other man in her culture or her community would ever treat her this way. And I think maybe in this moment, that's where the shift has happened for her. And she says, no one, sir or Lord. And so then he says, neither then do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin or go and sin no more. It's a line that we've heard countless times in our faith walks, probably. Go and sin no more. One of the commentaries I read this week pointed out that by refusing to condemn this adulterous woman, he condemns the religious establishment before which she stands accused. Yes. 
To all the people that are watching, this must seem crazy. And Pope Benedict, the Roman numerals are hard, 16. Thank you. Thank you for that. They're hard. Some of us got taught them in school and some of us didn't. Um, But he says that Jesus is not concerned with winning an academic dispute on interpretation. His goal is to save a soul and reveal that salvation is only found in God's love. And so the freedom that he's offering this woman is profound. And our view of the story ends here. But here's the thing about this woman's life. She's been given freedom, but she has to walk back into her life. We don't know what her situation is. We don't know if she was the person who was married or the other person was married. We don't know if she has kids. We don't know if she has people that work in her house. We don't know anything else about her, but she has to stand up and walk back into her life. She's been exposed. Now everyone knows what has happened in her life, what she's done. She's not innocent. She did the thing she's accused of doing. And now she gets to walk back into her life and make new choices. That's the freedom that Jesus is giving her. He's saying, you can go back into your life now. And the bravery that that must take to stand up and walk back into her life, a different person. She's walking out of the temple, a different woman than was dragged into the temple. Because of this interaction with Jesus, because in front of an entire crowd of people, she was given the humanity that has been robbed from her most of her life. And I love that what actually doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't actually like tell her accusers that the way that they're treating her is wrong. He just treats her differently. He just on display of the whole crowd treats her like a human being. He doesn't make a comment of it. He doesn't make a show of it. He just does it differently. And in that freedom, in that shift now, she is able to walk forward into her life a different person. I believe that that gives her the strength to go and to sin no more. To walk back into the eyes of judgment and of harshness because she has found freedom alongside of Jesus. And this is the kingdom that God is ushering in with Jesus. This is the kingdom, one of grace and of mercy, one of action and lives shaped by love and the space to grow and to walk forward into life a different person. This is the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. So as you came in this morning, um, hopefully you grabbed a rock. I just want you to hold on to that for just a second. Anyone not have one? Want to raise your hand? Annika has a bunch. She can run over to you. Yep. Annika, you go grab Joe over there needs a rock. Thank you. I wonder for those teachers of the law, when they first signed up as young men to devote themselves to a life of service towards God, I wonder if their hearts were soft. I wonder if they were geared up for a life of loving God and loving other people. I wonder if they were motivated by love at the beginning. And then sometime over time, something happened. And all of their learning about scripture might fill them with pride. All their efforts at obedience and diligence to do well fill them with disdain for anyone who is less devoted. 
All their giftedness fills them with impatience and contempt for those who are weaker until one day their hearts are cold and they're hard. There are these sins called the sins of the spirit and they are things like judgmentalism and pride and arrogance and moral superiority. And here's the thing. When these things grab a hold of us, what happens is that we don't even see the truth about us. We just walk through life as if it were a courtroom and we're the jury and you have a stone in your hands. So there's a hard question for you and for all of us this morning. Do you show compassion to sinners? Do you see someone in their worst moment and do you feel angry or irritated or do you feel a sense of empathy and compassion? When you hear about sin that's happening, whether it's in a person or maybe it's in a group of people, do you feel internally like you are just ready to throw your stone? And friends, this doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place to be mad at sin and to have a righteous anger that desires for things to be made right, but there is a difference between this and towering over someone to declare judgment on them, on their very personhood because of their sin. And friends, do we show compassion to sinners? And not just the people who agree with our political viewpoints or share our economic status or who have the same physical abilities that we do or a similar education level, but as we move through life in our homes and at our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, are we moved with empathy and love and compassion? Friends, Kevin is just going to play some music for just a little bit, and I want you to hold your rock for a minute, and I want you to think about who this rock represents in your life and invite Jesus into that space. This morning, we're not going to pretend to know what that might be, but I invite you to just meet with God for just a moment. Just take a minute. Good and gracious God, you sent your son here to give us an example. As we draw near to you, as we spend this Lenten season asking for change and transformation in our lives, God, would you send your spirit upon us? In our moments of silence, in our moments of reflection, God, would you speak to us? Point in our lives the places where we um, need healing, where we need to recognize the face of Jesus and to see others differently, God. Give us your eyes and your ears 
and your mouth and your heart for other people. We pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite Bob Morse forward. He's going to sit in our chair, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what change and transformation has looked like in, looked like in his life. Got it. Morning, church. Morning. Thank you. Oh, when you greet people, especially believers, and well, when you greet believers, you should say, how are you, child of God? And you pray for joy. So let me get situated here a little bit. Uh, Colleen said I had 15 minutes. <laughs> that got her attention. All right. Well, whatever. it's great to be able to sit there with a, a cup of water, actually, in this chair. Um, we've been coming to this church since 1995. My wife, Diane, and I, and um, for all those that uh, have brought meals, and cards and all kinds of good gifts and breads and things like that. Diane broke her foot a couple weeks ago. She's at home right now um, working on some different things, and uh, she's been praying for me in this part of it as well. But thank you for that. Uh, Luke and Maddie. Luke is 23. Maddie is 20 now. She goes to Bethel. Luke graduated from Northwestern. Um, and uh, when we came in 1995, um, one of the first people we saw that greeted was um, Pauline Sorvik. And Pauline Sorvik, those of you that know her and, and loved her and still do, of course, absolute saint. Um, she, uh, she actually um, came in, Diane looked at her and recognized her and said, I know her, I know her really well, but I don't know, I can't remember who it is. I can't remember who that is. And she's very good with faces, actually very good with names. Uh, one day her parents came to church and was at the old church, apost apost apostolic church, sorry, that we had before we built this one, and said, Mom, who is that? I can't, I, I know her, but I can't recognize. And she said, well, honey, that's your school nurse. When you were eight and nine, that's Pauline Sorvik. And so she went up to her. At this time, Diana's eight months pregnant with Luke. And she says, Diane Lundquist, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> so here's what I got for, uh, for, for my part of it and what I've, I'm going to say. Um, you know, in through your life and, and what you do and all, praying for your neighbors, praying for your neighborhoods, praying for uh, a lot of people that, that are there, trying to make a difference, right, trying to reflect his light still is around you, trying to be a mirror to do that. I got baptized in January uh, here, and um, that wasn't what changed me. That was a statement. Um, I ran for city council, and I'm a council member at Redness Heights, working on some different things because I pray for, I ask for wisdom and discernment from other people to reflect his light to those around us, and it puts me more in the spotlight to do it. That hasn't changed me. Here's what's changed me. <clears throat> um, have you seen the, uh, the movie in regards to Tom Hanks, The Bridge of Spies, when he, um, he represented uh, Abel, the first uh, Russian agent that was taken, and um, 
Gary, Gary Powers was uh, taken from the plane, uh, shot down in Russia, and so he didn't want him to be executed, but to save him in case there was somebody of ours that they wanted to exchange, well, they did that. That was in uh, 57 that they did that. God set things in motion for me in my life about me being changed in 62. So here I am watching this movie uh, from work in 2015 when it first came out, and I'm having my popcorn, and that's the fantastic thing to do. Um, at the end of that movie, I, I remember having some popcorn itself and just watching the end of it and reading the, the storylines as they go through. And it said in there that, uh, that um, Jim Donovan, who was the, the attorney that represented him, um, he saved, uh, he was asked by President Kennedy to go in for the Bay of Pigs in Cuba and rescue some people there back to the United States. He saved uh, not 3,000 that he was asked to do, but 9,703 people that he was asked to save. In 1987, I had had a series of episodes and mysterious things that happened to me. Um, what it turned out to be was an inoperable uh, arterial, um, let's see, vascular malformation. It's called AVM is what it is. I've got a dead spot in my head, basically was, was bleeding in my head, about the size of a half dollar. As you can imagine, it was pretty devastating. Um, I lost a lot of things that I could go into, and I'm not going to go into right now because I don't have 15 minutes. I really am done now. But um, throughout all that, it was inoperable. They couldn't do anything with it, and um, I was quite sick. Uh, I came back a little bit, it would bleed and then stop, you know, bleed and stop. And so as it kept bleeding, it would just kill the, the, the cells in your head and it would get bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I really needed it, three and a half years later, uh, I was way up in Minnesota, in Roseau, Minnesota, working for USDA for the government. I got an ag degree of all things. Um, and I, need, I, I needed it. It was 1990. And I had this um, doctor drove home. I was living uh, in Alexandria, actually, at the time there, transferred me to Alexandria. And um, as when I drove home, I don't, know how I, I don't know how I did. I don't know how I was able to do it. But I went in to go see the doctor with my, with my folks. My dad was still alive at the time. And um, went in to see him. And it was actually uh, a doctor that had come, and his name was... Dr. Roberto Heros. Heros. Hero. Heros. <clears throat> and he said, um, well, gosh, um, I think we're going to need to do it, and we could probably do that maybe in the next couple of days. Long and short of the whole story is that, back to the movie, popcorn to my mouth as I was reading that. Jim Donovan.
so as I went through that surgery, I was blind. I became blind. And to be able to have that, he took my sight one morning. Surgeons in the world that could do it, and he had hired, been, been hired by the University of Minnesota um, to run their New York. For one minute, I woke up, I could see everything in the room. And I'm very grateful to God, and we're here to change lives, here to pray for people, make a difference. And this morning, as you're holding your rock, there have been times um, in different seasons of life where this has represented. Jesus encounters us, he changes us, and he moves us towards a place of freedom. Act with compassion and love and forgiveness because of Jesus.